Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. There's a pastor from Oklahoma City named Sam Storms who wrote a book about the end times called Kingdom Come. I heard him speak about it once, and as he began his talk, he told the story about doing some research for the book, and he did it at a Mardell Christian bookstore. Y'all know about Mardell? Raise your hand if you've been to a Mardell Christian bookstore. Don't be ashamed. Raise them up high. Goodness. I got my Bible engraved at a Mardell Christian bookstore. It's a cool place. So he goes to the Mardell, and he goes to the end time section, and he begins counting up the number of books in the end time section. He comes to 117, a number of different books on this subject of the end times at his local Mardell. Now, that's not even the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing is that 102 of the 117 books were devoted to defending the end times view popularized by the Left Behind series. 102 of the 117. This particular end times theology is commonly called, okay, get ready for this, it's a long name, Dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial eschatology. Say that five times quickly. For our purposes, I'm mostly going to refer to it as left behind end times theology, okay? Because that's a lot of words. I'm going to do it one more time. Dispensational, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial eschatology. Now, this theology has been the dominant perspective in American evangelical Christianity for the last 120 years. It's, it's what most people sitting in Protestant churches in America believe, whether you kind of know what it's called or not. It's just kind of what goes through our minds when we think about the end times. But it's interesting to note that no one in the history of the church ascribed to this view of the end times until the mid-19th century. So basically for the, the vast majority of the church, almost the first 2,000 years of its existence, no one believed that the world would end this way. And if you look at Christianity worldwide, this is still a minority viewpoint among biblical scholars and theologians. So why is it so popular here? And when I say popular, I'm underselling it somewhat, honestly. Because there are 16 books in the original Left Behind series Together, they have sold over 80 million copies. In fact, seven of the 16 books have hit number one on New York Times, USA Today, and Publisher Weekly's bestseller list. Seven of the 16 books. There is a kids left behind series totaling 40 books. 40 books. A series of graphic novels, an album, a full feature length album three original movies, a TV series, and even a reboot in 2014 starring Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage gets a laugh. That's funny. <laughs> there is even a trilogy of video games. I'm not making this up. I'm going to read this, so just so you know. A trilogy of video games that were promoted as, quote, a game where players can use the power of prayer to strengthen their troops in combat and wield modern military weaponry throughout the game world. Video game. 
In this game, players could also shoot non-believers instead of converting them. <laughs> Although that action did cost them, quote, spirit points, which can only be recovered by pausing their character to pray. To kneel down in the midst of the Armageddon, pray for a little bit, hope you don't get killed by the crossfire, get your spirit points back up, then you can kill another non-believer if you want to. Now, altogether, the Left Behind series brand is worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So when I say popular, I mean like really, really popular. But if, if no one believed this theology until the mid-19th century, and most people outside of America still don't believe it, why is it so popular here? Well, I want you to check out this clip, this collage of clips from the original movie. See if you can figure it out for yourself. Left behind the movie, the future as foretold by the Bible, the end time prophecy has begun. Left behind, seeing is believing. So, that's kind of a, a trailer and a couple of different clips. I, I think Left Behind is so popular in America because it is so perfectly American, isn't it? Like, we are a country that loves action and combat, right? Like, that, that's kind of part of who we are. We are a country that loves superheroes. They're, they're always number one at the box office, right? We love violent video games. In fact, violent video games sell better here than anywhere else in the world. We especially love it when stuff blows up, don't we? Don't we love it when stuff blows up? New York Times writer Michelle Goldberg said in her review of the Left Behind series, on one level, the attraction of the Left Behind books isn't that much different from that of Tom Clancy or Stephen King. The plotting is brisk, the characterizations are Mankian, and the people disappear and things blow up. That's what we love about it, right? Now, listen, I'm not putting down action. If you know me at all, you know that I love a good action thriller movie. I think blowing stuff up is fun. I do. I'm not trying to make the case that Left Behind isn't compelling. I'm just wondering if it's biblical. I'm not trying to make the case that it's not fun, that it's not interesting. I'm just asking if it's biblical. And more importantly, if the theology that drives it is the best way to understand the end times. Now, if you're confused about what exactly the end times are, to borrow a line from REM, it is simply the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Now, whether you are religious or not, most people believe this world will come to an end someday. Some say that it's gonna be due to global warming, others say world war, but Christians believe that the world as we know it will end and precipitated by the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Christians may agree and, and kind of come around that specific thing, but historically we have disagreed about how exactly it will all go down. It's mostly due to the fact that the Bible's description of the end times are incredibly difficult to understand. Unfortunately, this has led to most of us developing our understanding of the end times based more on books and movies than the Bible. This morning, we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to do our very best to understand it for what it is. 
in the culture and context in which it was written and not impose our own cultural biases on it. You ready? Okay, it's time for round three of heaven and hell and other things we don't understand very well. Let's look at what the Bible says about the end times. Now, if you've been here over the last few months, you know that we've been in this series we're calling, or excuse me, something larger. This series, the heaven and hell and other things, is actually part of something larger that we're calling a year in the story. And it's kind of just what it sounds like. It's our attempt to understand the Bible, not as a collection of moral pieces and theological pieces and historical pieces, but as one unified story. And so that's how we're going to look at the end times this morning. We're going to start where any great story starts, back at the beginning. So over the first two weeks of our series, we've shown you this graphic, heaven and earth. So this is what God originally created. In the Garden of Eden, this is what he looked out and he called very good. So Genesis 1 and 2, this is what he was making. But if you remember the story, not everything in God's very good world was exactly right. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to a serpent. And at this point, we don't know much about who the serpent is, but later in the Bible's story, he is said to be Satan himself. To put it another way, the term I'm going to use here and the term I'm going to use throughout this time together is that the serpent is evil embodied. Okay, it's like evil with skin on. That's what the serpent is. That's what Satan is. The temptation he gives to Adam and Eve is to be in charge. The serpent tells them if they disobey God, if they eat of that tree that God said not to eat of, they will become, quote, like God. That's what he tells them. You'll be like God. God's afraid of you eating that tree. Just eat of it. You'll become like God. You'll have the power to define good and evil for yourselves. You'll be in charge. You'll be the rulers. He offers them power. Now, it's vital for us to understand that this is real power being offered by the serpent here. He lies about a lot of things, but he does not lie about giving power to Adam and Eve. And the temptation is too much for them. They give in to evil embodied and they hand evil its first foothold in the world. And here's what happens. God separates. So humanity said, we want to be in charge. We want to, to take this power that evil embodied is offering us so that we can rule, so that we can lead our own space. And so God gives earth to us. He separates his space from our space, it was once one, it was once overlapped, everything was good and perfect and beautiful, but we said we want our own space, we wanna be in charge, we wanna make the rules, and so he said, okay. And he separated them. He allows us to rule the earth, we get to be in charge, we get to define good and evil for ourselves, but something is ruling alongside of us. Ephesians 2.2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. John 12, 31 calls him the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this age. Satan, the serpent, the devil, evil embodied. When humanity rebelled seeking our own space, we believed this would lead to us sitting on the throne, us making the rules. But when we opened the door to evil embodied, he took a seat right next to us. We see this again with Adam and Eve's son, Cain. He and his brother Abel are supposed to bring their best offerings to God, and Abel brings his best, and God is pleased, but Cain brings his leftovers, right? And God is not pleased. 
Cain gets angry and he becomes jealous of Abel. And, and here is what God says to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Notice the vivid imagery here. God personifies the evil of sin. He says to Cain that it's crouching at his door, ready to overtake him. This is that same evil embodied. The same one that tempted his parents in the garden is now crouching behind his door, ready for it to be opened so that it can overtake him too. We see this evil embodied again in the kingdom of Babylon at the Tower of Babel. See, what happened is Cain opened the door. Cain opened the door and sin came in and he ended up murdering his brother, Abel. Cain is cast out of the family. He's sent to this other land and there he starts putting together this society that's really built around giving in to evil embodied, violence and chaos. He has this descendant named Lamech who basically says, you thought Cain was bad. He sings a song about how bad he is, how many people he's killed, how many wives he has. And this all leads to this kind of first society built around giving in to evil embodied. And it's called Babylon. The Tower of Babel is this famous story. And the builders of this tower had a very specific goal in mind. Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. You see, just like their mothers and fathers before them, these people accepted the offer of evil embodied. Just like Adam and Eve, they are doing this so that they can be like God. And this is actually the first time in history that we don't see just an individual give in to evil embodied. We see a whole society, a whole nation give in to the temptation, the power that evil embodied offers. Babylon goes on to become a literal and metaphorical representation of evil empires throughout the history of the world. Because you see, giving in to evil embodied as an individual, it has horrible consequences, right? We, we know this. It, it breaks up relationships. It commits crimes. It can even lead to murder, right? Like Cain and Abel. But when entire societies give in to evil embodied, it gets really bad. They begin enslaving, oppressing, and murdering large groups of people with no thought or remorse. They start redefining evil as good and good as evil. They get to sit on the throne alongside evil embodied, and they make the rules. And they want to stay in the power, so they'll do whatever it takes to remain there. Think about Nazi Germany, Stalin's Russia, the American slave trade. Think about all these times where entire groups of people have come together and said, we don't care what it takes, we're gonna be in power. We're gonna call evil good and good evil. We see a vivid picture of a kingdom like this in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Egypt has enslaved the Israelites and is even murdering their children to keep their population from growing. And if you've heard or seen the story or, or seen the prince of Egypt, you know God liberates his people of Israel from this evil empire. And this day of deliverance is called the day of the Lord, or just the day for short. 
Now, Jewish people have celebrated the day, the day of the Lord, ever since during a meal called Passover. And during this meal, they eat a lamb as they remember the instructions God gave to sacrifice a lamb, mark their doors with its blood, and eat together the night that he freed them from slavery in Egypt. Now, remember this sacrificial lamb, okay? Remember this sacrificial lamb because we're going to come back to it. It's really, really important throughout this whole story. Now, every biblical author interprets the world as it is and the world to come through this Exodus event called the day or the day of the Lord. It becomes like an an archetype for everything. See, later we see the people of Israel enslaved again by Babylon and they cry out for another day of the Lord. They beg God, bring another day of the Lord. Come and set us free. And he does. We see this theme repeated through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament in the story of Jesus because Jesus is born into another evil empire, first century Rome. And again, the oppressed people under Roman rule are crying out for another day of the Lord. Come free us, come save us. As we read the story, there's foreshadowing that Jesus is going to do just that. But early on in Jesus' story, he faces a test. You may remember this story. He goes out into the desert to fast for 40 days, and at the end of it, he has an encounter with a familiar character. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now here's Jesus meeting evil embodied. And it's the same offer, right? Listen to me and I can give you power. I can let you rule, you get to be in charge, you get to define evil and good for yourself. But Jesus does something that no one else has ever ever been able to do on their own. He resists. Verse eight. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Evil embodied offers Jesus the promise of power and he says no. He overcomes. Then he leaves the desert and immediately begins ushering in this next day of the Lord. But it's not in the way that everyone thought he would. You see, people thought that he was going to recruit this huge army and go and battle the Roman army. People thought that he was going to to get assassins and and go after the leaders of the Roman government so that he could install himself as king. They thought at the very least he would begin to sow dissension among the people who were oppressed by the Romans against the occupying government, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't attack Rome at all. He goes after, listen to me, he goes after the evil behind the empire. He didn't go after the empire itself. He goes after the evil behind the empire because he knows. He knows what's influencing. He knows what is really at fault here. He knows who his battle is actually against. That same tempter he met in the desert, that same serpent from the garden, Jesus goes after evil embodied. He begins healing the sick. 
He begins giving sight to the blind. He starts casting out demons. He's going after evil embodied and all of the negative effects it has brought on to society. He's feeding the hungry. He's setting people free from slavery. He's forgiving people's sins. And then in the climax of Jesus' day of the Lord, you know what he does? He dies. He dies. He allows himself to be killed. He becomes that sacrificial lamb who lays his own life down so that others can be saved. In fact, it's at one of these Passover meals the night before Jesus is killed that he reveals himself to be this lamb. In Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And Jesus He makes good on his promise. His body is broken. His blood is poured out as the sacrificial lamb on the day of the Lord. But he doesn't just die. He overcomes death. He comes back to life again on the third day. And by doing this, Jesus beats evil embodied. He beats it at its own game. I love the way that Pastor Tim Mackey says it. He says, Jesus let evil exhaust its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful and that he could overcome evil. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon. He beat evil embodied, and he now gives us the power to say no to its temptation as well. Like Tim said, something changed that day. Something changed that day. Heaven and earth that had once been fully separated is now overlapping. There's there's a, a piece of it in between. And in fact, he moves on to making it a permanent overlap as he puts the cross in between it. He has this permanent fixture between God's space and our space where anyone can experience some of heaven even though we are on earth. He broke evil's hold on the world and is setting people free from its grip. But everything isn't complete. Now, I I say that to you and it's not a shock, right? We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world where people still give in to the temptation of evil embodied every single day, where they choose to redefine good as evil and evil as good to to prop themselves up, to give themselves power. The world as we experience it is not as it should be because humanity keeps giving in to evil embodied. We keep building new versions of Babylon. And because of that, there is a final day of the Lord coming. We see a picture of this final day of the Lord in the last book of the Bible called Revelation. 
Now, Revelation was written by a guy named John who says in the opening paragraphs that he received the words of this book as the title suggests, a, a revelation or, or a vision from God. That's how he got what it was, and he, he wrote it all down. And during this vision, he was shown how this final day of the Lord would play out. Now, there are so many different ways to understand and interpret this book. We could fill an entire series with them. If you've heard a, a Christian theory about the apocalypse or the Armageddon or, or the date the world will end or, or blood moons or scene left behind, you have been exposed to some different interpretations of this book. Now, I have opinions on how best to understand Revelation, but I'm not going to sit up here and try to convince you that I have it all figured out. In fact, I would strongly caution you against anyone who sits in front of you and says that they have it all figured out. Revelation and the end times. So I'm not up here claiming that I perfectly understand what exactly this final day of the Lord will look like, but I will tell you that I don't think it looks like that clip from Left Behind that we saw earlier. I don't think it looks like that. And here's why. John spends the first three chapters of the Revelation writing instructions to specific churches around the Near East. And then begins describing his vision in detail in chapter four. And then in chapter five, he says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So to, to wrap it all together here, there's this scroll. And it has these seven seals on it. Now there's, again, a lot of interpretation about what it is and what these mean and all that kind of stuff. But the important thing here is that nobody can open it. It's super important and nobody can open it. But then one of the elders says, no, 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 no. There's someone who can open it. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, all these nicknames for Jesus. The one who has overcome can open it. And so John has it all set up, right? The lion, the victor, Jesus Christ is about to enter the revelation for the very first time. He's about to come in to this book about the end times, the, the final day of the Lord. Here is his first appearance and we're all set up. Is he gonna be like in a lion headdress, you know, snarling and growling, like ready to take people out? Is he gonna have like Kirk Cameron, you know, like the, the pistol and he's like ready to shoot non-believers? Like, well, what's it gonna look like? We're, we're all set up. We're ready for it. Here's what it says. Verse six. Then I saw a lamb looking, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Jesus isn't surrounded by an army the first time we see him. He doesn't have a machine gun in his hands. He's not a general or a warrior. He's that same sacrificial lamb. The one who beat evil, yes. 
The one who overcame, yes, but the one who did it by laying his life down. When the sacrificial lamb goes up to open the scroll, everyone breaks into this amazing song of worship. And here's what they say, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. My friends, he is worthy to open the scroll because he was slain. Because he laid his life down and took it up again. Even later, in Revelation, when, when Jesus is depicted as riding this white horse coming down from heaven, it says that he's actually bloodied before the battle even begins. Before he even gets down to earth for the whole battle and whatever all that means and however it works, his robe is covered in his own blood. You see, because it's by his death and resurrection that he defeats evil. Jesus is not out to shed our blood. He shed his blood for us. Jesus is not coming back to shed humanity's blood because he already shed his blood for us. Why would we think a God who came down to earth and laid his life down would finish his work of restoration by killing members of humanity? Why would he do that? The very people he had just laid his life down for. Why, why do we think that? I think it's because we are a retributive society. We love our wars and our vengeance and our retributive justice. I don't think Jesus is returning on the final day of the Lord to kill humanity. Because I don't think he's after us. He's after the evil behind the empire. He's coming to kill evil embodied. The great tempter from the garden. Look at how the book of Revelation starts wrapping up, chapter 20. John says, and I, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A few verses later, it tells us Satan's final destination. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. My friends, I, I don't think, I could be wrong. I don't think that Jesus is returning on this final day of the Lord to wage some massive war against humanity. I don't think so. I think he's coming back to finish his mission of restoration. I think he's coming back to bring the fullness of heaven back to earth, the, the, the new heaven and new earth. This is actually what next week, our last week in this series, is all about. The new heaven and new earth, this beautiful recreation of Eden. A, a, a perfect place where life and justice and beauty and love are brought back in their fullness, where those things reign. And when you really stop and think about it, when you consider the character of God throughout the biblical story, when you consider the way that Jesus fights his battles, it just doesn't make sense that the sacrificial lamb would return to earth to wage war against humanity. It just doesn't make sense to me. 
His fight isn't against flesh and blood. It's against evil embodied. And I think it's vitally important for us to understand that, not just so that we can have a better picture of the end times and the return of Jesus, but so that we can better understand who we're supposed to be here and now. Because if you believe Jesus is coming back to wage war on non-Christian humanity, that's gonna have massive implications for the way that you treat people, right? When I was a kid in church, we sang songs like Onward Christian Soldier and I'm in the Lord's Army. When you grow up hearing that you're a Christian soldier and that you're in the Lord's army and that non-Christians are the enemy and that Jesus is coming back someday to wage war against them with you by his side, you get some pretty jacked up theology on how to treat people. You know what I'm saying? You end up with video games where, quote, players can use the power of prayer to strengthen their troops in combat and wield modern military weaponry throughout the game world. That's what you end up with. That's how we get there. We see video clips like that. We hear descriptions of video games. We're like, what are we thinking? How do we get there? This is how we get there, my friends. One of the passages of scripture most often used to propagate this dangerous theology of of being in God's army and, 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 and attacking other people is in the book of Ephesians, where Paul talks about the armor of God. But let me read to you what these verses actually say. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. My friends, our fight, just like Jesus's, is not against flesh and blood. It's against evil embodied. Paul even goes on to tell us the weapons that we're supposed to use in this fight. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything right, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We don't battle with modern military weaponry. We battle with truth and righteousness and peace and salvation and faith and the word of God. Here's the radical truth that all of this reveals. Listen to me. No human being in this world is our enemy. You with me on that? No human being in this whole world is our enemy. Even if someone has given in to the temptation of evil embodied, they aren't the enemy. Evil is. We don't fight against flesh and blood, and neither does Jesus. My wife and I are coming up on a year and a half that we've been a foster family. And in that time, we've had three little boys in our home. And among other things, foster care has meant opening up our eyes to some of the darkest parts of our world. Two of the boys have been abused so severely that their bones were broken. One of them was neglected so egregiously that he couldn't have attachment with anyone in his life. What was done to these three little boys is horrific. It is evil. I have no problem calling it evil. 
And for a while, I believe the people who did it to them and who allowed it to be done to them, I thought they were evil too. And I hated them. I hated them. You ever hate anyone? You ever feel like that? Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's an ex. Maybe it's a boss or a coworker, a former friend, a family member. We have people like this, right? If I'm being honest, I have to tell you that I hated, I hated our first foster child's parents. The anger that I carried for a while was absolutely crippling. Then Jesus showed me that they weren't the enemy. He brought me back to these verses in Ephesians 6 and reminded me that his parents aren't the ones that I was fighting against. In fact, he showed me that when I hate someone, I'm actually giving in to evil embodied itself. I'm becoming the thing that I hate. I'm convincing myself that I have the power to decide who is worthy of love and who is not. I don't have that power. Neither do you. We don't get to decide. Jesus loves each and every person who has lived, is living, and will ever live. His fight isn't against flesh and blood, and neither is ours. Like Jesus, we are called to sacrificially love people away from evil. We are called to share the good news of Jesus with them, both in word and in action. Look, I don't know what many of the images in Revelation mean. I have opinions but we, we can't know for sure. All I know is that the wounded lamb and the bloodied king are coming back to make everything right again. And I know that the war isn't waged against flesh and blood. Jesus is coming back to finish his, mis his mission of restoration to defeat the evil behind the empire. That is who he is after. Back in the Garden of Eden, God told evil embodied that the offspring of the woman would crush his head. Do you remember this? They give in to evil in body. There's the whole curse in Genesis 3, and he curses the serpent, and he says, the offspring of the woman is coming for you. He will crush your head. Evil is living on borrowed time. The day of the Lord is coming, and we are soldiers in this war, but it's not like any war that we have ever seen or experienced because our foe isn't humanity and our weapons aren't filled with bullets. We are battling against evil embodied, armed with the radical love of Jesus. That's our mission. It's time to stop hating people and start loving them. I'm not up here telling you that everything is easy or perfect with, with foster care now, because it's not. But this understanding has totally transformed the way that I see our current foster placements mom. We try to be kind to her, try to help her. We pray for her often. I know now that she isn't my enemy. The evil embodied that hurt our foster son is the same one that hurt her the same one that hurt her parents before her. 
It's the same one that has been hurting people since the very beginning. Our war is against that evil. And we fight it with truth and with righteousness and with peace and with faith and with salvation and with the word of God and with the love of Jesus. Because like we've seen throughout God's great story, love is more powerful than evil. It's more powerful than evil. Let's pray. God, thank you for the promise of the day of the Lord to come. God, thank you that you are coming. Thank you that you have not left us to wallow and to, to search on our own for hope and strength in this time but that you are restoring and you're coming again to finish your restoration. I pray for us this morning that we would see ourselves as a part of that mission, but not armed with weapons that carry bullets, God, but armed with love and peace and hope and the truth about your son, Jesus and the love and the grace that only he offers. Use us, God, to overcome evil with good in this world. Help us to love people out of the hate that they feel. I pray that the church and that this church would be a shining light of love and hope in a dark world. That people would see us God, they would think, I want that. And that we would wrap our arms around them and love them the way you love us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.